Good afternoon and happy Monday to you. Thanks so much for being with us today. We are going to talk more about the election coming up in the program. Richard Zussman will join us one more time after the 1230 news. And we are expecting to hear from Andrew Wilkinson at 2 p.m. today. And we will bring that to you live when he addresses British Columbians. Again, that's expected at this point to happen at 2 p.m. And you'll hear it here on CKNW. We're going to take a short break though, from talking about the election and the results of the election to take a look at something else that was happening this weekend. And North Shore rescue crews were called out and found some people in some pretty dangerous situations. And joining me on the line to talk more about what was going on this weekend is Mike Danks, who's a team leader and the air operations coordinator with North Shore Rescue. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me on the show. I got to say, I love your introduction. (laughs) <laughs> all right <It's> awesome. yeah <laughs> there you go well you and and the other crews other rescuers were very busy what was happening this weekend yeah it's been a actually it's been very busy since they they lifted kind of this some of the restrictions around COVID-19 um, and we seem to have frequent flyers that are getting into the kind of Haynes Valley area behind Grouse Mountain um, the problem is they're they're inexperienced, they don't have equipment with them, and they're not um, making it out um, before darkness. So they're really putting themselves in jeopardy doing uh, such a trail like that. Uh, one of the rescues that I was reading about or hearing about, because uh, we often talk to you about when you do find people, and thankfully uh, you and the crews are good at doing that, but when you do find them, oftentimes they're not prepared. Um, can you talk a bit or about this one in particular uh, and I don't know if it was your crew, because I know it was up closer uh, kind of to Lions Bay, but here there were two people with sneakers and their clothes were actually frozen. Yeah, absolutely. And we had a very similar call in the Haynes Valley, and that was for uh, a single male in his early 20s, dressed in, in street shoes, did not have any extra clothing. And essentially, you know, we're really lucky because there were people that were prepared back there that came across him and took the time to actually... Um, help him and try to get him um, out before darkness but he wanted to refuse their help in the end so the person actually went ahead to call for help for him Um, so Cruz actually had to go in there and and bring him back out but you know there's no cell service back there we've had calls where we have not located people that have been lost in that area so it's it's not a place that you want to be caught um, especially with no light source and no extra clothing. And I mean, it's one thing to not have the equipment that search crews tell you, that the checklist to have with you. But are you surprised at all that we're finding people right now? Uh, I mean, it was minus one in Vancouver this past weekend on in some mornings are, that we're still finding people wearing shorts, wearing light clothing, because it's not that warm out. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think the problem is they're, they're in the city and it's it's warm during the day when the sun's shining on you. But if you go back into those remote areas, you're looking at minus seven, minus eight easily when the sun goes down. And then we have icy conditions. So if you are going to be venturing out in those areas, you need to be prepared. You need to have extra clothing. You need to have microspikes or crampons with you and ice axe. We're getting into that season now, and it seems like a lot of people get caught by darkness and just being unprepared for the temperatures.
When uh, we're talking about this too, is it early to have these kinds of calls? I noticed as well that the gross grind was closed because of icy conditions and uh, just uh, just being unsafe. Is that normal for this time of year or are we early? No, no, this is totally, this is right on par for, we call it the silly season when things start to happen like this. And again, we're doing our best to get the message out. Adventure Smart is doing their best to to work with all the hiking groups and to be at trailheads to educate people. Um, Another big one that we're seeing is a lot of visitors to the province are coming and they're doing these trails um, completely naive to the dangers as well. So that's another big one is, you know, you have to let somebody know where you're going, what time you're expected back and when they should call for help. Are you concerned that the, this coming weekend we fall back? And, and because it does seem like a lot of people, like you said, aren't taking the time to realize just how long some of these hikes take. Are you concerned it's going to get even worse with it getting darker earlier on? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Just with sunset at six o'clock now, it's uh, incredible how many people are getting caught by by the sun going down. So again, it's, you know, shows like yours that really get the message out. So that's that's the important piece if we can try to prevent this from happening. Uh, you mentioned the COVID restrictions. Do you think that's part of the reason too in that hiking and getting out into the open is something that we can still do that is relatively safe if you go with a friend? Uh, unfortunately, uh, like you said, there's some people that are going on their own and not filing or telling anybody where they're going. Uh, but do you think that's that's part of the issue too in that that it is something that we can still do in distance and more people might be encouraged to get out there and go hiking? Absolutely. I think we have a lot of people that are actually seeing what we have in our own backyard. Um, And we're seeing people on trails that we typically wouldn't see, you know, novice hikers on. So that's part of the challenge is, again, they're not doing the research on the hike. And they just think, oh, I'm so close to the downtown core, I can go out and do these hikes and it's no big deal. But, you know, the North Shore is pretty unforgiving. um, And you really need to, to be prepared and to know where you're going and to make sure you have a headlight or headlamp with you. So, You mentioned cell phones too, and I think that's part of it, isn't it? That you can see the city from a lot of places where if you go just a little bit further, suddenly you don't have cell service. Are people too, uh, too um, reliant on their phones thinking that they're going to have service no, no matter because they are still so close to the city? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think a prime example of where you don't have a cell signal is as soon as you go into Lynn Headwaters Park, your cell signal is gone. So, I mean, you haven't even started on your hike and you have no signal. And I think people think the cell phone is this, this multi-device that can be your GPS, it can be your, your light source, it can be your call for help, but that's just not the case. We really stress to people, if you're doing some of these more remote hikes, to bring a satellite device um, so you can call for help. And Mike, just wanted to, t- to touch on it as well, and that we have been talking uh, about COVID. How has it been for searchers and the rescue teams doing this, and also having to to keep in those restrictions and to keep to keep yourself safe as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been fine for us. We have enough PPE this time, and we're going through the COVID protocols on the front end of these calls to to ensure our own safety and making sure our members are taking the necessary precautions as well. So we are making do. We're being more strategic about our responses, limiting the number of people that are going in. Of course, we always have a a backup team that's ready to go, but 
because of the amount of calls we're getting, we really have to be strategic about how many people respond. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this on what was unfortunately a very busy weekend for search and rescue. Uh, Mike, always a good message to put out there. So thanks so much for your time. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Well, uh, you've been hearing this in the news. Elections BC has released the most up-to-date numbers and estimating at least 52.4% of registered voters voted in Saturday's provincial general election. More than 670,000 voters voted in their electoral district during the advance voting period and 546,877 voters voted on election day at their assigned voting Place An estimated 85,000 certification envelopes containing absentee ballots will be considered for the final count. And uh, there are a few other numbers. But the big one that people are looking at today is the voter turnout at the projection of 52.4%. That means it dropped from the last election in 2017 when it was 61.2%. So why did we see this drop in voter turnout? Let's bring in Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Hamish, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome, Jill. Uh, Why do you think we've seen that pretty big drop when it comes to voter turnout? I think there are a number of things that account for the drop in voter turnout. One was a pandemic election. People didn't want this election uh, and many people just didn't get engaged uh, once it was called. So that's, that's, I think, the principal reason for it. Uh, But there were other reasons as well. There was a mail-in option, but that was, you had to sort of go to the online and request a ballot. And that was hard work or harder work than it is just to go to a a polling station. And I think that's particularly uh, a problem for new voters, first-time voters who are not used to this, may not be on the the registration uh, system. And they were difficult to find. They weren't necessarily, they may have been evicted from, lost their jobs, evicted from their apartments, not at university. So they were hard to find. And I think the third thing was um, probably uh, just a lack of enthusiasm from liberal voters. They were not happy with their party, with their leader, but couldn't bring themselves to vote for one of the other parties. So they just stayed home. Was it also, do you think, that people looked at the polling numbers, and even though we know in the past that polls can be wrong, people looked at that and thought, oh, okay, it's it's going to be an NDP majority, uh, I'm done, I'll just go about my day, and when they announce it, they announce it, and there was that kind of uh, thought process of why bother? There may have been an element of that going on. Uh, certainly research has shown uh, that when we have a competitive election, uh, then uh, that enhances engagement. And this did not appear to be competitive. So that would discourage engagement. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned the pandemic off uh, the top. How much do you think that did play into it in that? And also, as you said, there were the mail-in ballots, that option. How much do you think, though, people were either thinking about what they were doing, if they've lost their jobs, thinking about how they're going to continue uh, surviving through this pandemic or the health concerns of physically going to a voting station? Probably a bit of both. Um, I think all of us have bigger preoccupations right now than considering who to vote for. People are worried about their, the security of their jobs or they've lost their jobs and wondering how they're going to make ends meet. They're concerned about their health, the well-being of their kids and their families. So people were concerned about all of those things and didn't necessarily want to engage. And I think for some voters as well, uh, particularly elderly voters, and it are it is older voters who participate more often, uh, 
may have been nervous about voting in person, but not necessarily known how to uh, access a, a ballot online. Uh, are you surprised at all then with that that gap or that drop in that if we compare to the 2017 election of 61.2% to drop down to 524 uh, I'm not surprised. I, was, I thought this might be an election where we actually dipped under 50%. Um, this is not that far off our previous record low of 55.1, which we recorded in 2009, just 11 years ago. So I was anticipating it would be under 55 and possibly under 50. So given everything that's going on, it was about what I was expecting. And do you think, do the elected politicians, do they read anything into this? Do they care what the voter turnout is? They do, uh, because one of the things that uh, parties and pollsters have had difficulty trying to map is we know what people's voting intentions are. You call somebody up to do an opinion poll, how do you intend to vote? And they'll give you an answer. Um, But we don't know how to model who will actually follow through on that and and will show up to vote. And this makes it very difficult for political parties to launch their get-out-the-vote operations when they're not entirely sure who's going to show up to the polls on voting day. And when you have a big drop, um, that makes their jobs more difficult. So they care about it because they're self-interested. Uh, they should be care, to care about it because it's, it's, we're seeing a weakening of, our, of democratic engagement. This is not good for our province's democracy. But I, I'm not sure they're so concerned about that as they are getting their own voters out to vote for them. How much of it do you think is the campaign itself in that this was a pretty nasty campaign? They, they often are uh, the personal attacks against uh, different, uh, pe- different candidates. How much of it do people, do you think, weigh that with compared to the actual policy in that I doubt there are very many people who are voters, and, and I could be wrong, but I highly doubt there are a lot of voters who sat down and read each platform word for word. How much of it is that the, the personality uh, against platforms and against promises? Personalities are, are huge. I don't know if the nastiness necessarily discourages participation. We're certainly seeing a very nasty election play out in the United States, probably the nastiest one any of us have ever seen. Uh, but participation appears to be higher there because there is that perception that, A, it's a very important election, a referendum on Donald Trump, uh, and a competitive election. Or think, People think that it's competitive and are, are fearful about the outcome. Um, I think one of the things that happens in a pandemic campaign, though, is the normal things don't happen. We saw the leaders go out, give their announcements and do their photo ops, but there was nobody there except a handful of of media people with with cameras. And that sort of doesn't generate um, enthusiasm, right? In a normal election campaign, a leader goes out to do his or her photo op, and you get all the partisan supporters out there, the campaign workers in a rally, That's what the leader appearance is really there for, to motivate the campaign volunteers and get them excited about it because they're keen to meet their leader and then they want to tell their family and friends about it. None of that happened this time. So I think there was a distinct lack of enthusiasm at at, at sort of the the local level for this election. And what about even the, the act of door knocking? 
Yeah, that's another thing. Door knocking has been shown uh, to be the most effective way to mobilize voters. A face-to-face contact uh, between a candidate and a voter, or at least a candidate's uh, surrogate, you know, campaigner, and an actual voter. None of that happened this time either. So that would have hampered the get-out-the-vote operation for all of the parties. Uh, what do you see happening now? And we are waiting uh, for Andrew Wilkinson. He is going to make an announcement at 2 p.m. Uh, how do you see things uh, reshaping? for the Liberals in BC? The Liberals really now have to take the time to renew their party. They, they didn't do that after 2017. You know, they thought they could try and form a government. Uh, that fell through. Uh, and then we had this very precarious minority government, which turned out to be more durable than anyone imagined. And so the Liberals sort of were initially, I think, anxious for the next election where they thought they would assume their rightful place in government. And they didn't undertake the deep rethinking that they needed to do to reposition the party, even though the trend lines were in place going back as far as 2013, that the Liberals were losing support in the lower mainland. Now they've got no choice. Um, They are definitely going to be in opposition for four years. Uh, It's abundantly clear that they've lost support in the lower mainland, including out into the Fraser Valley, which I never thought I would see uh, in my career uh, teaching out here. And they have to really rethink uh, what they stand for as a party. How do they hold this famed liberal conservative coalition together um, and and win back the support of of their previous voters? All right. Uh, Hamish, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much, though, for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts with us. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Jill. Thank you. Well, we wanted to take a bit of a break from talking about the B.C. election results and all things political in this province and talk about an exciting new pro bono clinic. It's an animal law pro bono clinic, and it has just been established at the UBC Allard School of Law. And Victoria Schroff joins us now, animal lawyer and professor of animal law at that school at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, hello. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Well, I know uh, we we generally are talking about specific cases and cases that you are involved in, but I saw this and thought, how interesting, because uh, now, do you know, is this the first of its kind or one of the only type of clinics like this in the country? I believe it is the first um, in Canada and in the States. I think there's one or two um, in the States at Harvard and um, at Lewis and Clark I think they have um, animal uh, clinics that are run as part of their law school. And and explain exactly then what will this pro bono clinic look like? Well, okay. so the first thing that's really good about it is is that it's or pro bono. So it is it is a free legal clinic for low income people. And it's serving a need that has not been met up until now. So it's it's really great. And it's a beautiful tie in with the fact that it's access to Justice Week right now in BC. And so I think this is a really big boost for our four-legged friends. And when you talk about that to people who are lower income and would have trouble affording this kind of help, is there, do you think, that disconnect? Or is there, uh, are there a lot of people that simply can't access justice when it comes to justice for animals? Absolutely. It's a really good question, Jill. And as you know, I've been an animal law lawyer for 20 years in Vancouver, and I get inquiries every single day almost from people asking for uh, pro bono services. And I don't have the capacity to do all of my work on a pro bono basis. So I know that there has been um, a huge backlog in um, 
a need for a service like this. So it's it's really wonderful to see how um, we're we're bringing innovative ideas towards people accessing justice, and um, this way the students get an uh, get an opportunity both for themselves to jump in and get their hands uh, dirty doing real legal work and the community benefits. So it's, it's, it's a win-win. And I think you've kind of answered this. Students, who will be there offering legal advice? So it's the students who are the clinicians. So currently we have six student clinicians. It was actually um, a couple of our um, students from last year who approached us while we were teaching animal law. My my co-adjunct teacher, Amber Prince, and I, and um, the two students, um, Emily Wilson and Marie Turcote, came to us and said, you know, we, we'd be really interested in seeing something like this happen. And I had been envisioning um, a type of experiential clinic for our students for a long time. So this was just a wonderful thing. And the faculty got behind it. And um, we got to do this as part of um, LSLAP, which is UBC's Law Student Legal Advice Program, LSLAP. And this is, um, and it's just been launched this month. So it's, um, it's really great. I feel like we could have a we need a better uh, shortening of the name than L Slap. It's, yeah, it sounds I know, different. I know. It's, it's it's a little unfortunate, but you know the L Slap um, nonprofit pro bono clinics have been run in Vancouver since 1969 in the hippie era when they first started, and so it's it's super grassroots, and they've been focused on poverty issues and social justice issues. And it's grown today to have over 20 legal clinics serving low-income people in Greater Vancouver. Um, And for me, being such a huge fan of innovative access to justice solutions, I think this is is a really good service that's going to help people who have up until now not really had anywhere to turn other than asking people like me, "Can, can you do my case for free? And when we talk to you, it's generally about the bigger cases and the cases that make the news headlines. Uh, most recently, I think Punky, unfortunately, the the dog that was euthanized. What kinds yeah. of cases do you anticipate uh, you'll be dealing with more often? Um, for for me or through the clinic? Through the clinic. Uh, through the clinic, the clinic, the the clinician students will be able to deal with um, some aspects relating to dangerous dogs, so not dissimilar to Punky. And they'll also be able to do um, probably cases relating to comfort animals in the um, in the situation of housing and residential tenancy issues and off-leash dog issues. There are a number of different things, um, but of course, um, they can't do every kind of case. Uh, and they are supervised by a staff lawyer at LSLAP. And so... I'm going to be providing, along with a couple of other lawyers in the community, um, ad hoc volunteer pro bono uh, consulting. So, so it's you know we're going to see how this unfolds, but I think that it's um, it's great because cases like um, Susan Santic's case about Punky show that there's a huge need for pro bono um, work in in the province relating to animals, so that so that animals can access justice as well. And I would imagine, too, it would be cases, and you kind of touched on this, if somebody, say, has a support animal that isn't being allowed uh, where support animals are allowed to go or anything like that, where you would hope right. it wouldn't have to go to to a lawyer, but maybe it does. Yeah, sometimes it does, you know, and people don't understand, for example, um, a person who's visually impaired, who's blind, is allowed to take their dog anywhere. 
and sometimes they get stopped at restaurants and so forth. And there are, within the um, ambit of what the student clinician can do, um, they're allowed to go to court in some instances. They're also allowed to appear before tribunals. And these are students who are super enthusiastic about um, animal law or maybe even one day becoming animal law lawyers themselves. So it's, it's one of those things where we have, we have these projects that show how we can get um, our, you know, innovative and collaborative ideas out there and to show that, you know, hey, you know what, it's not just people who have money who need justice, it's everybody. And, and Access to Justice Week is, is, is a great time to start talking about those issues and, and the launch of this clinic is super exciting as a Canadian first. Uh, so for this particular clinic, for the pro bono clinic, does somebody have to show that they make a certain amount or they make less than a certain amount? Yeah, there will be there'll probably be a means test that they have to um, go through. And that's all part of the intake procedure um, for um, running the clinic. Um, and everything's being done remotely right now because of COVID. Uh, so there are no drop ins. Um, but we expect the clinic to run till at least May. And, and then we'll see about how it would maybe run through the summer term. Um, but, um, you know, we're, we're very encouraged. And we've had we've had support, as I say, from all kinds of quadrants. And it was actually really kind of LSLAP to allow us to fold this um, clinic into their bigger umbrella. Um, because as I say, they've been they've been around since 1969. And, um, you know, they've, they know how to do these clinics really well. All right. And you mentioned that it is Access to Justice Week. Uh, you're also doing a webinar for people who are interested in talking about justice for animals. Is that for anybody that wants to sign up? It is, actually. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned it. It's, um, it's part of the, um, there's a, an environmental and, um, what is it? I'm not sure what, it's, I think in the environmental law clinic it's part of the environmental law clinic out at ubc and they're running a um oh sorry center for law and the environment justice for animals and so myself and camille labchuk of um, animal justice are going to be um the two panelists talking about different ways for animals to access justice and so it's it's a great tie-in for um how people can understand that we have a need to address systemic changes that we've seen in society and how law needs to catch up with that. And this clinic is, is to me, such a, a great pathway towards one of those access to justice routes to show how things can happen. And we can see as an extension for me, partic- particularly of my teaching, to see how these experiential learning um, um, things can happen for students. And it's just a win all around. All right. Well, it's exciting things happening and people can learn more about that. I imagine if they go uh, to the Allard School of Law, go to the website and they can find out more. Victoria, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill.